Hey, just a heads up, this is a horror episode, so consider this a content warning. This may not be suitable for kids or people with delicate dispositions. If that's not your speed, maybe skip ahead to around 22-23 minutes and listen to my interview with Ellie Maitland. No scares there, just friendship. Alright. A cabin, far from the city. A young couple in love. A skittering, clawing, creeping sense of horror. It can only be the winner of 2015's Death Scribe Audio Horror Competition, right here on Radio Drama Revival. It puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the podcast again. Hello everyone and welcome to Radio Drama Revival. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Wild Claw Theater is a theater company out of Chicago, Illinois, where I'm from, and they specialize in putting horror on the stage. As you'll hear later in the show when I speak with Wild Claw Company member Ellie Maitland, a veteran of Chicago's radio theater community, they've been producing horror plays on stage for the past eight years. Every winter, they put on a short play festival called Death Scribe, and that's why I've brought you here today, eager listener, because we're going to listen to the winning entry from 2015's Death Scribe in its podcast premiere. Five short audio plays are performed live on stage with accompanying foley. Then a panel of judges chooses one playwright to win the coveted bloody axe. It's campy, it's spooky, it's great. If you live in or near Chicago, I definitely say it's worth the trip. And hey, if you're interested in writing a piece for Deathscribe, well, listen up to my interview with Ellie after the feature. Alright, without any further ado, here's 2015's winning piece for Deathscribe, written by Joseph Zettelmeyer, directed by Sarah Savini, Starring Robin Coffin and Jennifer Santanello, and featuring Foley work by Ellie Maitland and Jeffrey Gardner, here it is. Earwigs. If there was one sentence... One grouping of words, a moment that doomed us. It was this. This place is perfect! (laughs) Amber loved the house as soon as she saw it. Not a house, a cottage. Our dream, a little place in the woods. And Amber loved it. Absolutely perfect. But the minute I set foot inside, I don't know, I could see the beauty of the place and the smell of the forest and the hardwood and everything. On the surface, it looked like something out of a painting, but under the surface. Listen to those floorboards! It really is. We did it. We really did it. Mm-hmm. What? What is it? Does something feel off? No. (laughs) 
Never mind. It's great. Really. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Listen to that. That is the sound of not worrying about crap. The birds are saying, Sarah, no more traffic jams and smog and... Oh, you speak bird? Fluently. Uh. They say, Dr. Ambrose was right. Mm-hmm. They say, big city living can exacerbate pre-existing anxiety disorder. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> exacerbate. Oh, those are some smart birds. <laughs> well, it's not an exact translation. Ah, This place will help. I know it. Okay. And if you hate it, it's a rental. We can always... Thank you. I'm just saying. Amber. Thank you. Give me the grand tour already. Okay. Of the cottage or... Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, let's start at the basement and work our way up. Why? Bedrooms upstairs, duh. Ah. Okay. I think this one leads to the basement. What the hell? to just give me a minute I know they're creepy as shit but they're harmless honestly I, I heard that they they'll crawl in your ears and they crawl into in your, your brain that's what I heard it's totally not true they just burrow in wood they eat other bugs they're 100% harmless okay yeah yeah okay <laughs> you were just startled that's all I know, because I, I really did hear that they... They don't. They don't actually go anywhere near your ears. Our brains are safe from egg-laying. Okay? Okay. First thing tomorrow, I'll call the exterminator. To kill them with fire? Yes. <laughs> yes, baby. To kill them with fire. I 
struggle with anxiety problems. I've tried every pill, every therapy, but Amber was the first person I ever met who kept me calm. She has this way about her that just, I would look at her and everything else wasn't there. Just her. Buying the cottage, we, we both always wanted to live in the woods, away from it all, but Amber made it happen. For me. That night, after checking every inch of the cottage and maybe a couple's annex, Amber and I turned in for the night. She left the windows open, thought the sounds of the great outdoors would be soothing. Damn it, she was right. There's this river nearby, and it was amazing. I was asleep in minutes. That kind of sleep where everything just disappears. Darkness and peace and... That... That sound... Masticating and gnashing. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to describe, but it was strange enough that it woke me right up. I could hear it in the room somewhere, but... People often mistake fear for anxiety. <laughs> They're not the same thing. Similar, yes, but not the same. The big difference... Fear is a response to a very real, definite threat. Anxiety is this apprehension, a panic created by something you cannot see, cannot identify, but you know it's there all the same. You know it. <laughs> Even if no one else does. And so I reached over, <laughs> turned on the light, and I saw it. I don't care what anyone else says, I saw it. This thing, this little fucking insect crawling into Amber's ear. Not just crawling, chewing, working its way into her. <laughs> Baby, what? Oh, get it out. It's inside your... What happened? Oh. Talk to me. No, there's something inside your ear. What? In the earwig. I saw it crawling up your ear and... Oh, Christ. Sarah, you had a nightmare. That's all. No, I saw it. It's... <laughs> get off me. We have to get it out. Sarah. It's going to lay eggs in your brain. Sarah. Let me go. You have to calm down, baby. Look at my ear. I don't see anything. Exactly. Because there's nothing in there. Because earwigs don't... I saw it. It was a panic attack or a night terror or something, but there's nothing inside me, okay? The whole earwig thing? It's a myth. That's all. But that wasn't all. I knew it in my heart. Yes, I get it. Rationally, it didn't hold up, but I knew what I saw. Eventually, Amber went back to sleep. Me? I lied there, staring at the ceiling, counting my breaths, but I never went under. 
I just, I kept thinking and, and replaying that horrible sound in my head. That sound. The next morning, I went to work while Amber got to it, fixing up the cottage. When I got back... Did I what? Did you call the exterminator? Oh, yeah, no. I figured I could handle that myself. Amber! They're harmless, creepy, sure, but they don't do, like, anything. I'll get some raid or a bug bomb and... Those things are infesting this cottage. Okay, infesting is maybe a little strong. We saw them in one door. What about last night? You had a night terror, that's all. There was something about her tone. She was telling me to drop it. And I did. I shouldn't have, but you know how it is. You love someone, and when they give you a clear signal not to push, you don't. That was my mistake. Things got worse over the next few weeks. I kept hearing things. Not the chewing, but... They were everywhere. In the walls. In the floors. Amber assured me there was nothing wrong. She even pulled up the boards to show me. Every time there was nothing there, but... I could hear it. I wasn't imagining it. They were there, and Amber was covering up for them. I know how that sounds, but you weren't there. You didn't see how she changed. You know, she never got any bug spray or anything, made no attempt to kill these things, and she stopped. She could see that I was freaking out, and she just didn't care. Let it drop, Sarah. Yeah, that was her go-to response to my fears. Just let it drop. There was a distance growing between us. I thought, at first, I thought it was because I blamed myself. I thought she can't handle me anymore, but that wasn't it. Amber was the most patient, caring human being you'd ever meet. Mother Teresa was a cold-hearted beast by comparison. So I started spying on her. Amber, not Mother Teresa. <laughs> I'd act like I was going to bed. But I'd just peek around the banister and watch her. Watch her talking to something. That's what she sounded like. She'd kneel down, facing the basement, and just... Please believe me, this was no nightmare. No, this was the woman I loved, acting like she was possessed. Not just the distance. My therapist said that it's not uncommon when a couple moves in together for there to be some shortness while we adjusted to each other. He said the worst thing I could do was fixate, to obsess on these little differences. But they weren't little. This wasn't a realization that Amber was different than I thought. She was changing. Something was changing her. Amber? Amber? What? We need to talk. No. I'm serious. You're always serious. It's killing me. Go back to sleep. Something's wrong. No. With you. No. Something's wrong with you. Go back to sleep. I saw you. Saw me what? I saw you eating... Shocking. Spiders. I saw you eating spiders. You're being nuts. Don't. 
Don't call me that. I don't want to fight. I just want to sleep. I saw you picking spiders out of their webs in the living room. I saw you toss them right into your mouth. It's your new meds. They're fucking you up. Stop dismissing this. You ate fucking spiders, Amber. That is a big deal. I'll, I'll call Dr. Ambrose tomorrow. He'll... No. I'm not. Stop it. I am not insane. You might be. What? These last few weeks, I see you. I see you watching me when you think I'm not paying attention. And every day is a new litany of things that you're freaking out about. Or things I'm doing. I don't think you can hear yourself. And I'm worried. You're worried? Try being with someone who's eating bugs. I'm not eating bugs. I'm not doing anything, but... We're falling apart. No. It's something else. Something that... This isn't some outside influence, Sarah. We, you and I, were not working. Don't say that. It's true. You know it's true. No. It's you. It's something inside of you changing you. Like what? I'm dying to know, Sarah. What do you think is changing me? I think they're inside you. What? What's inside me? Earwigs. Jesus fucking Christ! Uh, That night, I saw one go into your ear. I think it laid eggs. Stop! Inside your brain. I think that's why your personality is changing. Sarah, stop! These eggs are like growing or eating parts of your brain. and No, that's just... Is it really easier for you to believe that some urban legend is burrowing in my head than to accept the fact that you need help? Real, serious help? I'm not crazy. And I am not the host mother for a colony of insects! I'm leaving. What? I already talked with my mom. I can move back home for a bit and... Oh, you can't. This is our place. This is our life together. I just can't. I can't be there for you anymore. It's too much. I'm sorry. I am not strong enough. This isn't you talking. It is, Sarah, and I need you to hear me. There is nothing wrong with needing help. Don't. But you need more than I can give you. Don't do this to me. I'll call you tomorrow, okay? When I get to my mom's, we can... Don't. Don't leave me. And then it happened. This isn't the end. We just... Amber? I'm just... I'm... I'm just worked up and... Baby? Baby! I thought she was having a seizure or something. Her eyes went bone white and then she just writhed on the ground, grabbing her head. I ran for the phone. I called 911. They said they were on their way. 
I turn back to her and she screams. That was the last thing she ever said. I saw her eyes clear. She looked right at me. And I saw them. Hundreds. Thousands, I don't know, but they were inside her trying to get out, burrowing their way out, and... Exploded. <laughs> she just, her whole head erupted into the swarm of, I'd been right. The whole time I was right. Those things had been inside her the whole time, gestating, growing, and. When the paramedics arrived, they saw me sitting there, sobbing, covered in Amber's blood. Her body was just lying there, her face this wreck, and I tried to tell them, I tried to make them understand, but the fucking earwigs had already scattered into the floor, into the shadows. I'm here for psychiatric evaluation until the trial. Not if it makes any sense to them, not that it makes much sense to me. There are things that have to be seen to be believed, I suppose. But that won't be a problem. See, earwigs are really tiny. I didn't even notice the one that had crawled into my hair when Amber died. Rode with me all the way to the hospital, to the jail, and it's in here now inside my head. I can feel it. Not a dull, unspecified dread, but a very real fear. And in a few days, maybe less, everyone will know that I was right. I was right all along. That was the bloody axe-winning piece for 2015's Death Scribe. And now, what you'll hear is a recorded phone conversation between me and Death Scribe stalwart Ellie Maitland who performed the Foley for the piece you just heard, alongside Jeffrey Gardner, the executive producer of Our Fair City. Now, if Ellie's voice sounds familiar to you, gentle listener, it's because she plays Cassie Wilkins in Our Fair City. What a gal! She's everywhere. Give a listen to our conversation. Hi! How you been? Good! Um, busy. The past month has been a lot of hurry up and wait on trying to figure out summer gigs, and Mm -hmm. this was like the largest hole I've had in my schedule in probably 18 months, and that was kind of weird for me, like in a way I really wasn't anticipating. 
fully digs, actually. Like, I worked seven different shows in the past year, and that that was also, like, really uh, something that just kind of st- I stumbled into. But now Wildclaw has a show as part of a uh, theater festival in early August, so that's something to look forward to, but also far enough away that maybe I can wrangle, like, some summer travels or things like that. That would be a great package deal if I could swing by you guys for a day or so and sure. also see, like, go to visit my sister and her brood. When she was pregnant the first time, she decided to watch all of the scary movies she could find that included pregnant ladies. And so since then, she has whimsically thought of herself as the brood witch because of uh, this one Cronenberg movie I will not I will not scare you with right now. <laughs> so so is, is, horror, is horror a thing that just runs in your family? You know, I actually blame my sister pretty sincerely for my uh, major education on horror early on, because the way date night worked for our parents back in the 80s was whichever kid got to pick the fast food, the other kid got to pick what movie we rented from Blockbuster. So Eve would often, I, I claim, trick me by offering the promise of Long John Silvers or Dominoes in front of me, and then the transaction would mean she got to get the next one in the Nightmare on Elm Street series or <laughs> the Friday the 13th series or whichever one she had decided she wanted to see all of, compulsive completionist style. And I was probably, not only was I a fragile child, but I was probably also at least a year and a half too young to really want to even have to play it cool with these movies, but I, I did what I could. Do you remember Do you remember the moment when you first started to enjoy being scared? That is a really good question, um, because let me see, how, how would I explain this? Because I would say that the, the last time I saw a movie that really earnestly, sincerely scared me was probably when the J-horror phenomenon started uh, spreading through America. Um, some friends of mine and I in college all got um, the original version of The Ring, mm-hmm. and we thought that was really cool. And then the next thing we had an ap- opportunity to see was uh, the follow-up by the same director, Hideo Netsuka, called uh, Dark Water, which was remade in the States, but I didn't see the remake. But there was one moment in the original version that, really stuck with me to the extent that I was glad I had roommates to go home to. And I didn't check under the bed, but I definitely thought about it. I had a real appreciation for how that felt in a way that I haven't had from a movie or from a storyline since then, other than in an appreciative or an enjoyable kind of way. A friend of mine, one of my best friends, who's also was a dynamo horror fan, since she had children, she now can't watch any movies with children in peril, which is interesting to me because she was a horror fan. And so it's strange to me that she now can't see movies where that might actually, the horror might work. It's something that I've been trying to wrap my head around since I became involved with a horror theater uh, company and community, the idea of why horror and what specific um, reasons or motivations people have for seeking out these narratives. Because I feel like there are people that are horror fans that are trying to perpetually one-up themselves, kind of like people that are always eating spicier and spicier foods. So it's less about getting the scare than it is like outsmarting or withstanding 
their experience. Is there a point at which, at which the experience kind of outstrips the catharsis? I think so. And that's something that, uh, is uh, less, uh, uh, that I feel less personally invested in for my reasons for seeking out horror narratives. And, but, but I still think it's interesting and something that I, I want to have more conversations with people that have that kind of interest in it, investment in it uh, later on. But I don't have a lot of people in my immediate uh, community that I feel like fall in that category. Uh, a lot of the people that are in Wildclaw came to horror narrative by way of theater it's rare that there are people that came to it specifically because they were horror people first. Let's talk about Wildclaw. How long have you been a member of the company? I started working with the company in late 2011, joined the company in early 2012. Um, and we have done some original plays, by, uh, specifically by our literary manager, Scott T. Barsotti. Um, we performed a show that he wrote called The Revenants, which was a uh, zombie love story that asks the question, when does love die? Um, and we've also done some adaptations of classics, including H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Um, sure. We've also done a flagship show every year, which is called Death Scribe. And that is our short audio drama horror competition, where people submit their short plays and the top five finalists are performed live at one of the big theaters in Chicago. We've been lucky enough to have the main stage theater for the past five years. We also performed at the Music Box Theater for a couple of years before that. So these are houses that sit somewhere between uh, 200 and 300 people, and they're uh, performed by some of the best actors in town, directed by some of the most well-respected directors, and backed by a live full band mm -hmm. and a table full of Foley artists that are generating all the sound effects live. You've worn so many hats at Wild Claw since you began there, like you've been on stage, you are the the chief Foley artist for the company. What are what are some of the, the roles that you have? I have acted, I have written uh, pieces for the, the company to perform, I have uh, production managed, and also I've uh, become their lead Foley artist in the past couple of years. And let's see, my relationship with Wild Claw, my relationship with horror is something that's been changing a lot in the past couple of years as well. And the thing that I've come around to ultimately is that I think horror narrative has one of the best opportunities for generating catharsis in a lot of uh, theatrical opportunities that I've seen. Because the one of the most deeply personal things you can do is tell someone what scares you. And much like when people talk about a joke, what it, uh, trying to figure out why something is funny automatically makes it less funny. When people start trying to explore why something is scary, that makes it less scary. And I think having opportunities for people to come together as a community and, and explore things that are frightening to them makes a really exciting opportunity for people to explore their fears, become better people, become braver people, and build on that sense of community that they've uh, had from that shared experience. Was it, what is it about audio that suits horror so well as a genre? Audio, I think that our lizard brain is really finely tuned for what we're hearing and listening in between moments in a way that is going to be more effective than 
most of the things you can design on a theater budget visually, for one thing. Also, most of the, the people I know, when they have read books that really, really scared them and then been super excited for the film adaptations, they've always been disappointed because the big bad didn't live up to what they saw in their imaginations. I think the theater of the mind is a really rich place for horror to germinate because people are always going to be most scared of the unknown and the things that they can't define and the things that they can't really see. And I think that it's really exciting for audio, therefore, to really evoke what we're, what we're less willing to understand or de- define through visuals. So describe for me what people would have seen had they been at Deathscribe this past year. What does the, what does the stage look like? as Earwigs is staged? The stage is um, set up so there's a two, I think probably like picnic table-wide uh, tables uh, shaped in an L for the Foley team to work around and behind that has all of our props. Uh, most of them are going to be sitting under the underneath the table and compartmentalized between what shows are going to be featured in, which is a real estate issue, as well as um, just trying to make sure that we're minimizing how many things can uh, generate extra noise by being out and about and loose. Because you and Jeffrey did all the Foley for every production this year, right? Yes, we did. Yeah, that's how it generally works. It's pretty much how it generally works. The exception being, like, this was the first year of the eight? Was this? Yeah, this... Maybe this was Describe 7. I'm getting my numbers mixed up right now. But this was the first year where we didn't have a single pre-recorded sound, which was a big victory. because That's, awesome. let, that's been an, uh, uh, used as a last-ditch effort or um, an emergency uh, request a couple of times in the past and something that we've always tried to get away from. And I think part of that is we just had a whole lot more planning and a whole lot more, like, advanced work. We had... Uh, fully items available for the actors to hear and relate to in their earlier rehearsals instead of just sticking them in at tech. And Jeffrey and I had a couple of what we called noise parties, bang on things and wail on things together and try to decide what would make the best sounds for certain effects we were trying to accomplish. And it could be uh, something where just having that extra time afforded us the understanding of banging on a bowl upside down is going to be better than banging on it when it's slightly open and around the mic. So you're getting a different quality to the echo and the reverberations in it. Little things like that, when you have the time to use them, can really make or break the way you're making a sound effect. And I think also having that information in advance for the actors made them a lot more willing to play off of the sound effects and let them inform their performances. So Deathscribe is performed in front of a live audience, so there's going to be uh, a couple of, a lot of visual cues that, that we miss when we're just listening to the recording, stuff that you do for the, the benefit of the live audience. Um, so, so I've been dying to ask you, what what is the, the prop that that performed the sound of Amber's head exploding and all the earwigs crawling out. That was that was a big get for us. And actually, I'm glad that you brought up the difference between having the recording and having the visuals because that's something that we're also always working toward. The the goal being to have a story, to have a, an audio drama that stands alone on the strength of its dialogue and performance and sound effects. But at the same time, 
we're all on stage for a reason. And there are a lot of theater companies in Chicago that have embraced uh, a really hyper fantastic and effects-laden way of telling stories, but there are also uh, some companies that have a, I, I've heard it called a, a more Brechtian aesthetic, where it's more skeletal and the audience can see very clearly how different um, aspects of the story are being manifest in a way that doesn't really um, require as much, like, uh, money. Now, hold on a second, because I don't want this question to get away from us. Uh, what what did you pour all over the table for the earwigs? Okay. Um, there are a couple of different things that uh, played the earwigs in this production. The ones that were scrabbling around after the girls had walked into the basement were mm -hmm. gummy bears and also the gravel from a fish tank. How did you and Jeffrey manipulate the, the gravel and the gummy bears to make those sounds? Um, pouring them, honestly, from a ceramic dish and from a plastic tub onto the walking board. So you could, you got both the, the fluttery sound of them kind of like falling off of a shelf that had not been in use for a long time. And also the scrabbly noises of them falling and then like using their millions of little feet to tick, 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 tick away back into the walls and into the dark spaces where you couldn't see them. Right. But Amber is having her covert conversation with one of the earwigs later in the sh in the piece. Um, that was a dialogue between a pencil uh, and a mechanical pencil. No, it was a dialogue between a pen clicking and uh, something we call a clicker, which is just a, a sound effect clicky thing that we were playing with in conversation. So one would be the slightly muffled sound of a bug that was smaller, and then someone who spoke fluent bug, but was more human-sized. But then when we get to the head smashing at the end, mm -hmm. and that's uh, a big example of one of the big differences between performing an audio drama strictly for podcasting and performing an audio drama with a live audience in play. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, we don't have all the props on our table all the time. Part of that is the real estate issue, but also a large factor of that is because you're in the audience's view the entire time, you don't want to spoil everything for them. You want them to have those opportunities sometimes where they can see something on your table that hasn't been played with yet and build some suspense for themselves, have them start imagining what that sound effect might be or might how it might get manifested if they're expecting it. And this was an instance where we had a pumpkin on a stepladder under a drop cloth until almost right before the smash occurred. And so we also had blocked out when I took off my shrug, because, you know, formal wear for death scribe, when I put on my apron, when I kind of came out around from in, behind the table to the front of the table, moved the mic, pulled the drop cloth off of the jack-o'-lantern, grabbed the brick that was going to be smashing the jack-o'-lantern. All this was used in a way to let the audience know what was coming and hopefully help them build some anticipation but also not ruin it for them. And that's another thing that I'd like to touch on a little bit. I keep talking about like the sense of play that the audience brings into the situation once they're getting more accustomed to seeing uh, physical objects manifesting as different things from what they actually are in real life. The relationship between 
having a bird whistle play the sound of a whistling tea kettle versus actually playing a bird or the sound of a pumpkin getting smashed to stand for a person's head getting caved in. I mean, I think that's a little bit more reasonable than the other one, honestly, just because you you run out of actors faster that way. So writers and directors are competing in Death Scribe to win this coveted award called the Bloody Axe. What is it that um, that judges are looking for? Uh, what what makes a winning Death Scribe production? I feel like it's similar to what it is that the company is looking for when we are selecting these pieces as well. And I should say that the um, the process with which we uh, select these pieces is a several hour long knockdown drag out fight between all of the company members. There is a smaller group of the ensemble that reads all of the submissions every year. That's some hundredish submissions from around the globe. And they will winnow it down to the top 25 to 30 scripts. And those are the ones that the entire company will then read and try to argue into having a place in our show. And I say that the the way I am looking at these pieces is, is it an audio drama? Does it have good characters, interesting foley opportunities, and uh, a compelling hook? Most importantly, is it scary? And because we are curating a show for an audience, we're also looking for different types of horror that can be represented throughout the course of the evening. And it's really interesting to me to see what different kinds of stories are more popular or more uh, in the in the cultural consciousness from year to year. So sometimes we get a lot of scary children's stories in one one submission period. Sometimes we'll get lots of deep one stories in one submission period. We we had like three or four I, evil iPhone stories get submitted uh, two years ago, and I thought really? that was interesting too. Yeah, I love... I love how deeply personal horror is, and I love when people, regardless of how experienced they are in telling stories in any capacity, in any facet, in any style, I love seeing what it is they think is the answer to the question, what is a short audio horror story? Because those are very uh, widely debated and uh uh, strange and hard to determine uh, types of story in general. And one of the pieces that I thought was really a success for us that we performed this year as well was one that I, when I argued uh, about it to the company, said I'm not. Sh-, I said I'm not sure why this is a horror audio drama, but more importantly, I'm not sure why it isn't, and I think that's why I'm intrigued to see it in the night. It was a very experimental piece that not only didn't have any concrete sound effects put in, but had two characters playing multiple roles. So, yeah, so I thought it was very interesting, like, in terms of the challenges it could uh, provide for our actors. I did think it was scary, and I wasn't sure what it would mean in terms of a horror narrative. And I think the director that took that piece on did a tremendous job with it. And one of the things that she also provided us with was an opportunity to 
use uh, and have something new in our arsenal because she had gotten really interested in the idea of a water phone. It is a unique and gross sounding instrument that uh, has a, a basin that can be filled with water, but it's not actually called that because of that water. It's called that because of the other water that invented the thing. And it's uh, so it's got this basin full of water and also tines on the side that when you strike them or bow them and then move the instrument will reverberate and echo in different ways. And it's become like really, really popular in horror soundtracks over the past 30 years as well. It's like if the theremin is the musical poster child for sci-fi sound effects and uh, film scores from the 1950s, and the water phone would be his goth brother from the 1980s and 90s. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about um, Joseph Zettelmeyer's writing style. So, so Zettelmeyer's the one that wrote this script, and I've also seen two other pieces of his performed Death Scribe. And there was the Monroe County Pumpkin Queen, and that was in 2013, and then before that was Fish Story, and he won uh, Bloody Axe for that. Uh, and something that I've noticed that he does uh, is that he writes comic horror pieces where, that'll do like a lot of tone whiplash and go from a laugh line straight into like a scare line. Uh, is that is that something you've noticed with a lot of – is that something that is – I mean I know it, it worked for him. Is that something that has also been historically successful at Death Scribe? That's a good question. Um, I have seen – some pieces that uh, lean more on comedy horror uh, do really well in the process. Um, I think it's a good way for them to be memorable when we're doing the calling, in addition to, I think, Joseph Trick's writer. So I think that he can do that very effectively. Um, I think that uh, horror that leans into comedy uh, is effective because it lulls the audience into a false sense of security and can also encourage and... Um, cultivate more empathy with the characters because we all recognize the ridiculous in ourselves and that might make them a little bit, uh, a bit more empathetic. And so we're more frightened for them. And I think that that tonal whiplash you're mentioning is a, a good way of taking advantage of that. Also like, and this is just a, a personal preference myself. I get a little bit bogged down with horror that is relentlessly dark and dour and, well, horrific the entire time. I sure. think that it is trusting the intellect of your audience more to uh, let them know that they're watching a horror play unfold and then help them forget that and then eat their face. I remember one time my sister talking uh, soon after she had become a new mother about how sometimes her little boy would be fine, 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 and then there would just be a random stimulus, and then he would just, quote, unquote, quote, lose it. And she wasn't saying that he was a badly behaved child. She was just saying that there was too much stimulus for him to process, given how much new stimulus and new information he was constantly absorbing at all times, because he's a wee baby. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's close to what the Lovecraft thing is, like just having so much information that you cannot compute. And when it comes to Lovecraft and their like, you know, old white protagonists, I think a lot of that is like, my, my life doesn't matter. My life has been built on so many lies and so many um, false securities that I don't know how to start over. And I think the older we get, the more inertial we get. When it comes to our place in society, what we think we know, what we are comfortable 
trying to relearn that that I think I think that is one of the things that is scarier for people the older they get. They get really threatened by the suggestion that they don't know what they're doing. So 2013, um, Monroe County Pumpkin Queen did not win. That was a that was uh, Joe Zettelmeyer's piece about um, like a woman who uh, who always lost the uh, the pumpkin growing contest, but had turned all the the winners into pumpkins. Right. Uh huh. That was uh, that was one of my favorite pieces early on to perform fully for because of an opportunity that I came up with in the design um, at one point the new uh, the the pumpkin woman that he has uh or that the, the scientist has transmogrified the, the experiment is not going well and there's uh mention in the text about there being so, uh, the possibility of some gas escaping but but that wouldn't happen and then i just started pulling open a balloon so you heard that low mosquito-like wine of escaping gas throughout the rest of the scene until uh, she exploded. So the the thing that won that year was a CTA, a Chicago Transit Authority horror story called uh, We Apologize for the Inconvenience. Yeah. Uh, did Chelsea Pace write or direct that one? Uh, she wrote it. It was directed by two-time... Uh, um, a while uh, death scribe uh, winning director Kevin Tice. Ah, uh, right. Okay. What I remember about that, so that was about like a cordyceps style fungal infection that was slowly spreading across um, along a row of elevated train cars. Um, and what I remember was is that people would start to sprout spores. Their faces would just poof, and they would sprout like like broccoli stalks. And what I remember was as the spores started flinging out of their their terrifying fungal exflorescences, what you and the other Foley artists did is you opened your mouths, you filled them full of pop rocks, and you just put your face up to the microphone. That is one of my favorite moments in live Foley that I've ever seen. I just, it filled me with so much joy. Because it was <laughs> awesome so gross. We actually repurposed that for the Archie show uh, when we took it to Convergence last summer as well. That became part of the, the coda to the, the braining and the infection in that scene. What is your favorite Foley sound effect that you've ever created on stage? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I've got some uh, some in the running if if you've got some time. Yeah, I, I suppose I will allow you to <laughs> to list several. Okay, I mean anything with produce is usually a lot of fun, both for the audience and for the practitioners. So any of the carnage we've gotten to uh, take advantage of, we had a, a werewolf attack in one of the pieces this year as well that meant lots of celery and le lettuce. Um, one of the rival pieces in last year's Death Ride was this only last year? How time flies. Yes. Lewis had a, uh, a violent beating in it, which the director directed in a way. So we, there was uh, some really wonderful call and response between the actors and the Foley team. So he was miming uh, a little bit, just a little bit of some punching so the audience could feel the, like, could make the, that connection. 
uh, along with some vocalizations, and then we would punctuate it with uh, abuse on uh, heads of lettuce and uh, celery and carrots getting broken and, and snapped and uh, destroyed. And another thing that I think is uh, a good reward for the audience in a, a live audio drama format like that. So let's see. Pop Rocks is definitely up there. The balloon escaping bat, uh, balloon full of escaping gas before the pumpkin woman blew up is uh, definitely up there. Uh, just the things that, that excite you, the things that excite the audience, that you hear some people can't help but laugh a little bit when they get it and you know that you've gotten them to go a little further down the rabbit hole with you. Those are the things that are really exciting and rewarding. And it doesn't even have to be something that outlandish. Like, uh, we used the those um, cr- cricket rasps, those wooden instruments. They're usually shaped like frogs, and you scrape along the, the ridged back of them to sure. make the sound of a cricket chirp. And I swear, every time we uh, crack one of those babies out at a show, we get at least one person in the audience laughing because they're so excited that they recognize what it's supposed to be. I don't mean that in a patronizing way. It's so rewarding to see people excited to be to have an opportunity to play, to be that final member of the ensemble that is completing or recognizing the story that they're being told. Oh, I was going to say, and I think that's another thing that's uh, unique to the opportunities that a horror uh, can provide in audio drama. Again, because like the the visuals, like the individual visuals for people, are going to be a lot more rewarding and satisfying for them to nurture than if we were to try to broadcast or um, realize uh, a complete design for them visually on stage. But that's tangential to different ways that live audio drama are being performed around the the country right now. There's a really wonderful show I saw in San Antonio earlier this year called The Intergalactic Nemesis, Mm -hmm. and it's a similar setup in that it's a couple of actors realizing between five and seven roles apiece and a table uh, full of Foley work for a single Foley artist to be playing with to generate all their sound effects. But the third dimension in their show is that they've got a screen uh, up above them where they are uh, projecting comic book panels to give the audience uh, another sense of the the scenery, which makes sense, I think, in a sci-fi or fantasy genre more than it does in horror. But it's also something I thought was really cool when I saw it for the first time this year. Why Why is that, do you think? Is it because there are just visual reference that we can't really recreate in audio drama without without being expository? And that, that I think would... that was the, the chief uh, motivating factor in it was to alleviate some of the exposition because instead of saying, he went down that tunnel, you saw a tunnel, and then you heard the sound of them going down that tunnel, which I think accomplishes the same thing in, in a way that works great for them, and I'm not saying necessarily works for every uh, capacity, but I like seeing the different things that are going on with live audio drama with today's artists. And I think it's, I, I, in one of your earlier episodes, you said that you felt like we were in kind of an explosion right now of uh, audio drama mm-hmm. right now with the, the new artisans that are contributing to it. And I think that 
um, we're in a meta period for live audio drama as well, because this is not something that was really being taken into account in the golden days of radio, uh, because this wasn't something that they were really focusing on, like who was going to be watching them do all these wonderfully ridiculous, strange things to accomplish their sound effects. Um, and so we've all seen some lip service done to that era. I feel like if, if I'm remembering correctly, my first exposure to the idea of uh, Foley artists producing sound effects for a radio theater was an episode of Punky Brewster back in the mid-80s where she and her cohorts won a writing contest to have a sketch that they had written for, uh, produced by a local radio um, station. That's really funny. And I know that other sitcoms have done similar treatments. Like, I know Frasier did one, and I'm pretty sure that more than one uh, sitcom has also done lip service for uh, War of the Worlds. I know The Simpsons did, but surely more than just they have. At one point, I actually looked on TV Tropes to see if this was something that had enough uh, information on it or legs in it to warrant an entry, but I didn't find anything. But, but that perception or that representation of sound effect generation for audio drama that still already had that meta narrative built into it because of how often the camera focus would be shifting. So at first you'd be on the actors saying their lines and then they would use a jump cut to show you the Foley artist doing that wonderfully ridiculous thing. So that's another way that has really informed the way we're staging things for live audio drama in Describe because we don't want to give things away to the audience too soon. We want them to be able to get the information from the actors and then look to us to see what it is they should be hearing if, if that's how they want to absorb the story. It's our goal at the Foley Table to always have something going on, but not necessarily to be f pulling focus, unless, unless we're smashing a pumpkin, then I think it's our turn. What frightens you, Ellie, if I can dig right in? Uh, well, I'd say that I am, as I get older, I think the things that frighten me most are what I don't know. I understand uh, a lot more now why I think uh, Lovecraft was uh, a groundbreaking when it came to horror narratives, because so often his protagonists were learning about their own insignificance in ways that they couldn't comprehend. The idea of Lovecraftian madness being like someone's brain just broke because it couldn't handle all of the information that it had just been deluged with, like pouring cold liquid into a hot glass or vice versa and making sure. it shatter. So I was, I've been wondering this for a while. Do you ever, first of all, do you ever eat celery as a snack now? I actually reintroduced that to my diet earlier this year, and it was weird. Weird enough to warrant a Facebook observation. Like, when is it very hard for you not to eat celery performatively? No, I can say that's, that's not been a problem yet. Usually because <laughs> in, in a lunch context, it's, you know, nice little, like, ants on a log-style presentation, like uh, a three-inch long spear of celery rather than the big... Full, uh, kind of leafy stalk that you've just pulled right out of the bag, which is better for the audience, for that person way in the back row that can see it's a, a full stalk of celery instead of something from a, a snackable. If 
if our listeners want to want to get in on this death scribe action, uh, how would they go about submitting a script? Where would they find out about the rules? I'm so glad you asked. Um, they can go starting on May 1st. That is the beginning of our submissions window this year for Death Scribe 2016. And you can go to our website, which is wildclawtheater, with an R-E, dot com. And if you do a search on Describe, then that should pull up the rules and regulations. You can also like us on Facebook and find out about Describe and similar and sometimes exactly as exciting offerings there. I am pretty shameless when it comes to the hashtags that I've been uh, creating for uh, Describe submissions. Um, uh, I want you to scare me. Um, right here, right now, with right spelled W R I T E, um, producing with produce. Uh, you look smashing. Ellie Maitland, you're a monster. But your your favorite kind, right? Yeah, but my favorite kind. Okay, good. A wonderful monster. <laughs> Ellie, thank you so much for for joining me on RDR. This is wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. It was delightful to be here, and I've missed you. I've missed you. Missed you. Oh, thank you. You heard her, ladies and germaphobes. If you want to scare the living daylights out of Ellie and the Wildclaw crew, point your internet browsers to wildclawtheater.com slash deathscribe. That's theater with an R-E. And that just about brings us to a conclusion for this episode of Radio Drama Revival, brought to you by Wondery Media. Let's kick it with the credits. Fright here, fright now, you're listening to the sweet beats of Oakland's own DJ Stranger Danger. You can follow him on SoundCloud. Our producer, Matt Boudreaux, is like a werewolf wrapped in a mummy with vampire teeth. Don't mess with him. Legend has it that he turns into a waveform when the moon is full. Unplug your sound system. Our researchers, Monique Boudreaux and Heather Cohen, are carving dread sigils into the walls with knives now, even as we speak, working themselves into a gibbering frenzy. If you've ever wondered how I find out about new shows, it's not our submissions page at radiodramarevival.com slash submissions. It's the demon blood I bathe in. Thanks for that, Heather and Monique. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch, who has a mojo hand and a conjure eye and a bag full of screaming gree-gree that he keeps buried in a box inside a box inside a box behind his house. I'm David Reinstrom. Okay, new catchphrase. This one stolen entirely from Jeanette Winterson's The Passion. Thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival. I'm telling you stories. Trust me.